This is AI Podcast, not artificial intelligence, agency intelligence. Our team's going to be 10 times stronger than all the other teams. A platform for agents. When people think of niche marketing, they're thinking so small scale. In real life agencies, sharing their thoughts. All you need to do is get in front of more people. To transform an industry. Better coverages, uh, better pricing, just better everything. Real difference between givers, takers, and matchers. Agents. I guess I took a slightly different path coming to the agency. I know a lot of agencies. You can partner your clients with those companies that are looking for that specific target market. This is AI Podcast. Are you ready? I am. Let's go. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back to another episode of Agency Intelligence Podcast, where we give you the real agents inside the real agencies, giving you the real agency intelligence and not the artificial that they try to make you believe out there. This is Jason Cass, and today I'm back with my boy, Eric, again. There's people, when we posted the last podcast, Eric, that were like, you guys, when you guys get together, I love your conversations. I love things. I will give a shout out there to Michael Cruz. And and he's right about it because I think you and I get off the podcast and we talk about the feel um, that we feel as if we have with each other. But here's the deal. Eric, I don't know how much more I can do of these one-on-one because I got my own shows to do. And I've been talking to a couple people who have said that you just need to start producing your own podcast and releasing it on the AI podcast network. And I think what? we should take them. I think we should take them up on that. What? Yeah. Let's do it. I think you should. It's all up to you, dude. It's content for you. I'll still continue to do these with you one-on-one, but I don't think I, you and I can deliver them as quick as, as they're, as they're requesting. So just a little thought out there. Who am I without you? Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. That is really beautiful. Oh, boy, this is going to be a good one. Here's what we got going on today for you folks. Loyal listeners, we are going to dive deep. Before we do, AIbrainshare.com, AIbrainshare.com. I'm telling you right now, it's probably, the, the, the registration's already open. It's almost sold out. That's all I'm going to tell you. AIbrainshare.com, AIbrainshare.com. If you haven't been invited, you're not going. Only way you can get invited is to go there. I'll what? personally translate. I'll personally translate for anybody who goes. Since they don't speak English in Puerto Rico, right? Just Spanish. Oh, sh- uh, yet another reason to join us October 25th to the 28th in beautiful San Juan, Puerto Rico. And I'll tell you, AIbrainshare.com. There we go. That's enough of that. Uh, so, Eric, dude. So, the reason why, hold on, loyal listeners, the reason why Eric is on here again is because we want to continue our conversation. We talked on the last podcast about maybe doing some different topics um, due to some of the feedback that Eric's got, some of the feedback that I've got, some of the feedback from inside of the mastermind. We've kind of compiled a little list. We don't want to tell you all the list because it's probably going to change. And now maybe Eric starts doing his own thing. But today our topic is something that we dangerous. did mention. It is dangerous. Dangerous topic, man. Dangerous topic. Eric, tell him what it is, dude. Tell them what uh, we're we're going to step on some toes today, I'm afraid. Uh, do you ever get hate emails, Cass? Oh, not a lot, but I do get them, yes, where people like uh, 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 violently disagree with me on things. Okay. We, we might ruffle a little feathers today. No death threat. No, no. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, th- this, this podcast may start that. Uh, is that why you're bringing me on, to be controversial? Uh, well, you just, you just trying to drive ratings. The loyal listeners, when they hit play, the reason they hit play is not because of me or you. It's because they want controversial, and it's not that they want controversial; they want the truth. 
They don't want the fake news. They don't want the BS that the industry is telling them. They want the what? The real agency intelligence. That's what we're going to give them. So what's the topic today, Eric? Let's do it. Four reasons, right? Four reasons why I disagree with Dave Ramsey's investment philosophy. Okay. Think about that for a second. So uh, we're going to take on Dave Ramsey today. So I know a lot of your listeners might even be ELPs, right? There's yes. a lot of folks who A lot who of them are ELPs. So let's throw the disclaimer out. I always have to do this, and it's just the way it is. We are not here to make anybody mad. We're not here to pick on anybody. We're not even here to pick on Dave Ramsey. I mean, for real. We just know that there's a lot of population out there that say, I love Dave Ramsey, but... Or I don't like Dave Ramsey because, or I believe Dave Ramsey changed my life and this was how. So they're all over the place. So we're not going to say one of you is right or wrong. We are just going to talk about some, and I kind of know in the direction that Eric's going to go. So loyal listeners, I'm going to turn it over to Eric to start this, but here's where I'm thinking this podcast is going to go. It's going to run parallel paths. He's going to be on one path and I'm going to be on the other, still talking about the same topic, but I think he's going to be more of the smart, educational, rational thinking. And I'm going to kind of be over here just beating the shit out of Dave. Okay. That's what I'm going to do, but I'm going to keep it like, like respectable. So those are the two parallel paths I see this going on. So go ahead. Let me, uh, let me, let me first, let me put a disclaimer out there. Okay. I think, uh, I think I need to put a disclaimer out there. First, let me say, I like Dave Ramsey. I really do. I think Dave, and who, who am I to take on, who are we really to take on Dave Ramsey? He's helped millions of people get out of debt. I think his advice on getting out of debt is, is hands down um, some of the best out there. I give that to a lot of my clients. Uh, so this isn't about challenging Dave Ramsey or, or knocking him off of his throne. Nope. You know, I disagree often with his insurance advice, particularly some of his life insurance advice. I don't always see eye to eye. There's a lot of caveats with what he says. But when you're giving advice to the masses, you really can't nuance it a lot. Right? Right. That's one of the big problems I have with anyone really who, 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 even me, if you hear me say something, right, your loyal listener is listening. If I'm giving advice, I can't give you specific advice sitting behind a microphone hundreds of miles from you without knowing your situation. So I think that's one of the big problems with Dave Ramsey. So I, can, I get behind Dave. I get behind a lot of his dead advice. When it comes to investing, now I want to tell you, I, I just think his advice, I'm going to even say, I think it's bad. And in some cases, I think it's dangerous. I agree. And I'm going to throw out a disclaimer and then we're going to go. Promise. In 19, or 2013, I was heavily in debt. Me, my wife and I took the financial peace course and learned so much that we literally got out of debt, cars paid off, everything he talks about by 2018. 2018. So I'm not sitting here saying he doesn't work, but here's my main crux of this. So you guys know, I believe he's the best at getting you out of debt, but I believe his plan going forward is where I have a lot of the issues. And that's where we're going to go. Then you started off, let's start off with these four things. However you want to do it, list them all, list them one at a time, take it. So before before we jump into the four things, let me say a couple of things really quick. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess, I used to listen to Dave Ramsey a lot. And he said some things years ago about people who sell permanent life insurance that kind of kind of pissed me off. It kind of rubbed me the wrong way. So I stopped listening to him for a while. Uh, and then I, I binge listened to him over the past couple of weeks, kind of in preparation uh, for this, just to make sure that I wasn't speaking out of turn. Here's, here's a couple of things 
that I want to point out before we jump into it. So number one, I was watching one of his videos and he admits to saying that he gave up all of his investment license and he said he had all the the, the licenses and I, I don't I couldn't find which licenses he actually held. But he he said, I gave up my license so I wouldn't have to be regulated. Because when you have licenses, you have to be regulated. The only reason he still has his real estate license is because they don't regulate him. To me, that's a big red flag, right? When I have to, I am regulated by FINRA, by the SEC, what I say, what I don't say. Very good point. So that to me is a red flag right there is the, the, the person that some people are taking investment advice from isn't regulated. Now, he's got his, what he calls smart investors. They're the old ELPs that several years back, uh, he launched the Smart Vester program. Now, that happened to coincide with a big some, some regulation that was being passed by the Department of Labor. It never actually passed, but it was going to regulate the advice industry, the, the industry of giving advice. So financial advisors were going to have to become fiduciaries. This is something really important to understand. I'm not going to get too technical here, but as a fiduciary, which I am, I have to give you advice that's in your best interest. Now, that sounds crazy that some advisors wouldn't give uh, fiduciary advice that's in your best interest. But some no, it ad- doesn't. Some advisors are held to a different standard, and it's called a suitability standard. So that says, hey, if Jason Cass is a growth investor, I can recommend any growth investment to Jason Cass, and that's suitable. A fiduciary standard says, hey, Jason Cass is a growth investor. I'm going to recommend him a growth investment, but... If there's one out there that's less expensive than this one over here, then I have to recommend this one over here, if all else being equal. Um, so th- that's a really small example. Of a I got you. That, that's standard. good stuff. I didn't know that. So that is, that's the first red flag. That's not one of my disagreements per se, but that's something I think you have to tuck uh, in the back of your mind that I can't, I can't get on this podcast and really give unsubstantiated opinions as it relates to investments. Someone who's not regulated can. So I think that's something, again, to tuck, tuck in the back of your mind. So Crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah. So let's jump to the My first disagreement with, with Dave Ramsey is that he, from a planning perspective, says that you should be getting 12% on average year over year on your investments. On average, you should be getting 12%. Now, some people might be saying, yeah, why not, right? Uh, Dave Ramsey says you should beat the market. It's not that hard to beat the market. Let me tell you a little secret here. Most mutual funds don't beat their index with their with their tracking. Uh, but here's why I think this is so dangerous. So we're both young, right? We're still young, right? Absolutely. So, absolutely. Living large. 12% might not sound crazy. We might be aggressive investors, right? The relationship between risk and reward, the more aggressive To me, are, that sounds high. It, well, I, I, I'm going to tell you why it's high. But let's just let's let's. I'm giving him the benefit, and I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt. Now, I want to start. Okay, let's say that he's right. We're aggressive. We're getting we're getting twelve percent average return, and a lot of this is going to be anecdotal, man. This is stuff that like these are conversations I have regularly with people. Uh, the older you get, the closer you get to retirement, you start to realize that your retirement savings or your investment savings now have to be converted into ongoing income for the rest of your life because you're not out there earning money. So all this money that I have saved has to now convert to income, cash flow for me over the next 25, 30, 35 years over your retirement. So the closer you get to that mark, what tends to happen, your risk level starts to drop. You start to realize like, wait a minute, I can't, if I'm retiring next year, I, I can't afford a 30%, a 40% drop in the market. 
right right before I retire. So naturally, what tends to happen, and this is different for different people, but naturally what starts to happen is your investment, your risk tolerance starts to drop a little bit. You can't tolerate as much risk. So if I'm using a 12% from a planning perspective, if I'm using a 12% year-over-year average return for my investments from today until the day I die, I am underestimating grossly uh, the amount of money that I'm going to need because I'm not going to get 12% in retirement. Gotcha. So it is unrealistic. Most investors don't have that much risk tolerance over their lifetime. So what I think it does is it ignores kind of the stages of life that people are in. So if I did, if I found Dave and I was at the age of 55 or 60 and he and for me to expect that I'm going to get 12% year over year in the market is not realistic. It is realistic, but it's not smart for me to have my money that high leveraged or have that much risk and those type of products that provide that much risk. To be able to say in my old age that a lot of my income should be in something of lower risk, does that mean I'm going to get a lower return and that should be expected? Yeah. I mean, it's 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 risk and reward. So, you know, most of your listeners are uh, insurance agents, right? So the um, let's say you you decide, let's say you're captive, Right there's less there's not that much risk being a captive. Everything is fed to you. It's easy. So mm-hmm. what can you expect? You're probably going to get lower commissions. You're not going to have as much value in in the book that you're building. But True. if you go independent, now you're taking on a lot more risk. You have higher contracts, but you're also building more value in in, in the, in the asset out. that you own. So more risk, more return. So absolutely, the more risk. I mean that I mean that that crosses over into any. So what I'm saying, though, is in my 55, 65 year age, I don't need to have that much risk, which therefore was going to bring a, sh- a smaller return, which is expected because I, the market fluctuating is not going to hurt me as bad. Yeah. So you make two. There, there's two different ways you make money in the stock market, right? Number one, you make money by capital appreciation. I buy something at $10 and then I sell it at 20 Okay. Right. Okay. The mm-hmm. other way you make money in the stock market is through dividends or yield. I buy something at $10. It's not going to grow, but every year it's going to give me $2. Right. Okay? Like it's going to give me a good, okay. it's going to pay me back. So those are two ways. So we typically look at those as growth companies and value or dividend paying companies or, or in the bond world, we talk about yields. As you get older, you start to look at investments that might not appreciate in value as much but are going to generate some type of stream of income through dividends or again in the in the bond world we look at yields. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think 12% is absolutely unrealistic and I think it sets people up for failure plus you're listening to Dave Ramsey and you don't know anything I mean you might be able to spell investments. Okay and this is not a right. knock against people who listen to Dave Ramsey. It's not but it is. You, you, it's how about this? It's your client who I don't know. Let's say what's an industry? What's a niche that you work in? You use social services or or social services, non for profits, non for profit. Read something in a trade article or read something on Google. Walks into your office and says, "Jason, this is what I want. Do this for me." And you're like, "I I, I hear that's what you want, but that's not really what you need." Let me tell you what. No, no, I, I trust this source, so that's what I want. And you're like, "I I hear you," and there's some good points there, but that's not really what you need. 
And that's, I think, what one of the problems here is people walk in, they expect something, and it's not realistic. The thing I like about this, though, is that you've brought up a very good point about this Dave thing that I have never cons- considered is that, I mean, yes, if you, if they if what I've always been told is you can expect to get 10%. Over, they say, if you go back to like 1910, that any 10-year period that you pick, there was at least a 10% growth in that. Even in the worst times, within 10 years, it came back. And so- you know, Unless it's the first decade of the 2000s where you were pretty much flat. <laughs> so, okay. So it's kinda, okay. All right. Here's the, here's the thing about statistics and returns. You can almost, you can prove anything you want to prove. Okay. And, 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 and that makes sense. Yeah. And that makes sense. And so, so, so but my point- what you're really driving home to me, though, is that when I'm 25, I can have a lot more risk because I have a lot more time to make up for it if for some reason it would go bad. So therefore, I could probably easily expect that 12% and it would be smart to be in those type of products that are going to bring me that type of return because I'm young. But as I get older, it's not smart for me to be in those type of products that are necessarily now maybe some of them are and they're mixed. So I like it is, is what you're trying to say is that there's a lot of bad information that he's giving based on just like you said, their age or their circumstance that they're in. And if you don't know any better and Dave says it to you, you think that that's the gospel. And so you do it. So I don't even necessarily think it's age driven. Age is one of the factors, but I got clients in their seventies who are more aggressive than me at 40. Uh, gotcha. so, so I think there's a lot of factors that play into it. It's not one size fits all. And that's why it's so important Which, to meet with a fiduciary, yeah. someone who's going to learn you, know your situation, and give you advice specific to you. And let me tell you, this this 12% annual return that he sets people up for really mm-hmm. compounds the next disagreement that I have with them is that he promotes an 8% withdrawal rate from your investment account. Which is What's that mean? Let's say you save your entire life and let's say you have uh, $2 million in your investment account. So he says is that you can withdraw safely 8% of that value every year for the rest of your life, which is an insane withdrawal rate. The industry will say, hey, you know, 4, 5% is what we call a safe, that there's a high level of probability over an expected retirement that you won't run out of money if you withdraw 4, 5% of uh, account value. Dave Ramsey's okay. paying 8% of your account value. There is What's a- his reasoning for that? Because he thinks you're going to get 12% annual return. Ah. Uh... <laughs> right. So, so if you're not gotcha. getting, so you look at inflation and you look at, you look at your annual return, but this Makes ignores, sense. this ignores a lot of really important information. So there's something we call seek. Well, it makes sense. It, one second. It makes sense because if you're saying that you should probably, you're saying you should withdraw three to 5% should be realistic. And you're saying that really the market can get you anywhere between eight to 10 to 12%. He's obviously erring on the high side. You're erring on the realistic side that said it would be, if you're going to get an eight percent return, which is pretty solid, and you save four percent or you're gonna keep four percent and that's what you're gonna withdraw, the other four percent's gonna just continue to build. It makes sense. But I see how he's siding on that twelve, which is unrealistic, which then kind of justifies his eight percent, which it's justified off things that aren't necessarily realistic to certain people at certain times. So as you said, it compounds it. That's crazy. There's a lot of math here that I think is ignored. So when we we throw around num- we throw around numbers like 12% annual return or 8% annual return. But here's the thing. The market will never do 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%, 8% every year. What the market does True. is down 20, up 10, down 5, up 15. So there's something called sequence of returns that this ignores. So what sequence of returns says 
is let's say over a 30-year period. Okay. Let's just say it's, it's a retirement. Over a 30-year retirement, you average 8% on your investments. Now, okay. if you know math and averages and how that works, there's a lot of different ways you can get to 8% on average for 30 years. So what happens is, so you can have a lot of really high returns early in your retirement and then low returns late in your retirement, or you can flip it around. You can have really low returns early in your retirement, but higher returns later in your retirement. Okay. So there's something we call sequence mm -hmm. of returns. And this is something when we're looking at withdrawal strategies is if you retire today with, make the math easy with a million dollars, all right, and you're invested in the market. When I say the market, let's, let's say the S&P 500. And we just happen to have a 2008 event the day you retire. Your million dollars is now worth 600,000. All right. Dave is saying you can withdraw 8% of that. Now, we know that the uh -huh. markets were going to recover over time, but that drop in the first year early in your retirement is going to impact you for the rest of your retirement. You'll never catch up. If that drop happens later in retirement, that's not as problematic. So to throw out a, 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 a you know a, an eight percent withdrawal rate without addressing other issues, one eight percent is is insane to me. I think it's irresponsible. The success rate is so low, and, and there's something we call the Monte Carlo simulation where we can run thousands of different market uh, scenarios over a period of time mm -hmm. and come up with the percentage of success. Like what's your success rate at an 8%, I guarantee you. And, and I, I, I don't guarantee you, I'm, I'm, I'm suspecting that if we were to Monte Carlo, a portfolio at an 8% withdrawal rate, you probably have less than a 25% chance of success. Meaning there's a 75% chance that you're just going to run out of money. That, that just makes total sense. That makes total sense. One of my things that I have with, with Dave, and I think a lot of people do, has to do with term insurance. I, he really, really talks about that hardcore. He talks about that absolutely hardcore. And everything he says makes perfect sense. And it's reliable as long as you do his plan. And as long as you have that three to six months worth of... Uh, after you've paid off, snowballed everything, you have that three to six months worth of, of uh, what is it called? The security egg. I can't remember what, what you're, you're, he calls it. But I he, call it the oh crap account. Yeah, it, the oh crap account. The and then he... And then he says this 15% and you hammer down your 15%, you know, and then you pay off your, um, you're investing the 15% and you're paying down your house and you're doing all that stuff. But the fact is a lot of people don't do that. Life happens. They get irresponsible with that three to six month nest egg. So then what happens, and this is, this has been shown, it's been around long enough to show this, that people are getting to be 50, 55, 60. They took the class when they were 20, 25, 30. Now their 20 year term that he told them they need is leaving. They still have bills. They mm -hmm. still have taxes. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of things that now it's like, okay, now I got to go get life insurance. And instead of it being, you know, $30 a month when I got it, when I was 30, now this shit is, you know, 300 a month or whatever it or is it's, out or there. It's, it's a $50,000 burial policy or $25,000 final expense. Because that's all that's you all can, can get because you're not yeah. insurable anymore, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's where it's just like, that's a crime against nature. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure in the details, it probably says, you know, a disclaimer, but once again, it's Dave Ramsey. And if you don't know any better, if he says it, that's what we do. But I'm, I'm even going to say this, like I'll go back and forth on this. I used to do a lot of, I pretty much did nothing but permanent insurance early in my career, permanent life insurance. Now, a lot of what I'm doing is predominantly term insurance with some permanent, you know, when, when I'm sitting down planning with clients, you know, they have limited dollars to fund all these different financial goals. 
And I, and I look at that and say, man, you know, when it comes to life insurance, my number one rule is provision. You got, you got young kids at home and you've got debt. You need a crap ton of life insurance. True. So yeah, I'm going to sell you a million, million dollar half term or recommend you buy a million, million and a half term. And that might be all that you have until we can get you into a better position and, and maybe sell term that's convertible to where you can convert a portion of it at some point. So at least you're insuring their insurability or you're guaranteeing their insurability. But but yeah, financial advice. So what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on the mutual funds? Oh, that's number three. Right. So if you go to Dave's, you can go Google Dave's investing philosophy and, and he promotes strictly mutual funds. I don't have a problem with mutual funds. I have a lot, have a lot of clients invested uh, in mutual funds. And this goes back to one of the earlier things I said about the suitability standard versus the fiduciary standard. Mutual funds, most mutual funds are loaded. They're, they're commission-based. Okay, so whenever you buy a mutual fund, and this is not a bad thing necessarily, you're paying a a commission or a load to the advisor who sells it to you. And I'm sure there's a lot of listeners right now who are securities licensed and probably sell mutual funds in in their practices. And again, I'm not knocking mutual funds. Mutual funds are great because you can diversify really quickly with a little bit of money. Right? If you come to me with, I want to invest hundred dollars a month and I want to be fully diversified, I can't do that with individual stocks. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, the problem with mutual funds, though, is that if you're investing in a mutual fund, not in a retirement account, right, an IRA, a 401k, right. um, they're incredibly tax inefficient. So the way, the way mutual funds work... And I'm talking about these are people with with significant more significant assets. Mutual funds are great if you're starting to fund a Roth IRA for the first time, or a traditional IRA, or your 401k at work. You really only have mutual funds as an option, and they're fine. Uh, um, it's a good place to start. But as you build and accumulate assets, particularly outside of a 401k, mutual funds will limit you. There, there's other type of investments out there that can be more efficient from a cost perspective than mutual funds. Um, sometimes mutual funds. You can, you can over-diversify in a mutual fund. So let me tell you what I mean by that. So you buy one mutual fund. You might day one own or, or have some type of ownership share in 200, 300 investment, uh, 300 companies right off the bat. The reason mm -hmm. mutual funds need to buy so many companies is because there's so much money in there. They got to have, have money available for redemptions if people are selling and they need their money. Plus, they can't have you can't have a billion dollars in thirty companies. You have a you know a, a controlling interest in, in in a lot of these corporations. So they have to spread their money out a lot of companies. That makes sense. That makes sense. But I want to focus in on something really really important here. Again, on this idea is if you have money invested in a non retirement account, so it's a taxable account. To where at the end of the year you get your ten ninety nine and you have dividends and you have. Um, any capital gains, short-term or long-term capital gains that you realize that you have to pay taxes on. Mutual funds are terribly inefficient from a tax perspective. Number one, you can't do really any planning from a tax standpoint because mutual funds don't disclose or announce the capital gains that they're distributing until the end of the year. So you've, you've, lost, that you've lost that opportunity to do any tax planning from an investment standpoint. Because the way mutual funds are taxed is the mutual fund actually owns the companies, not you, right? You get, you get your statement, you see the mutual fund name. You don't see Apple, Microsoft, Adobe. You don't, you don't see the individual companies. So the mutual fund companies, if they sell something at a gain 
that gain is passed to you as the investor. If they sell something as a, at a loss, they 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 take that loss. So you all gains are passed to you. So promoting only mutual funds, particularly with with people with with bigger um, account values, it's really putting them uh, potentially in a bad tax position because we can man we can look we can manage money to where we can say we're not going to have any short-term capital gains. So short-term versus long-term capital gain. A short-term gain is if I buy something today and sell it tomorrow for a profit, I have to pay a short-term capital gain tax on that profit, which is, which is ordinary income tax. Whatever your, whatever your ordinary income tax uh, rate is, that's what you would pay on that gain. Okay. If I buy something today and sell it a year and a day from now, so over a year, I would pay a long-term capital gain tax, which is a lower tax rate. So as an investor, I want to avoid as much as possible short-term capital gains. Does that make sense? Makes sense. So That makes total sense. So as an investment advisor, if I'm investing money for you that's, that's in a taxable investment account, what we're doing is we're managing this uh, to make sure that you, you don't pay any short-term um, capital gains or we're trying to minimize it as much as possible. Can't do that with mutual funds. Can't do that with mutual funds at all. Hello, loyal listeners. Hey, are you a local agent struggling to find markets for your client? Maybe you, maybe not. Look no further than Nation Brokerage Solutions. With over 200 carriers, their comprehensive options give you what you need for your customers' ever-changing needs. With NBS, as they say it in the cool world, you can confidently offer a wide range of options to better support your customers and grow your business, A.K. agency. Don't settle for less. Do more with NBS. For more information about Nationwide Brokerage Solutions, visit nbsbrokerage.com. Cast certified. Uh, and that, that makes sense. Much all that makes promotes. sense. So, again, dude, yes. Yeah, so, so once again, I, I, well, it goes back to it's in it's in it's in it's um it's something we know about everything else. There, there's not a one size fits all, right? There's a reason why they make small, medium, large, and extra large shirts, you know, because it depends on the person. And I think it's the same thing here on all these points we're hitting. It, that sometimes I think we don't have as much as a uh, his insurance philosophies are. I believe a little out of whack as well for some of these reasons. It doesn't, one size doesn't fit all, but it not as much on this financial side. Is the more that I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking about these things, I'm thinking to myself, like, wow, this is so detailed. There's people who are licensed to sell this stuff that are listening as a loyal listener that are learning. And I'm thinking, how in the world is it possible? And then like you said at the very beginning of this, which kind of blew my mind, is that if you're regulated, you can't give advice, like I guess like online or something like this. But if you're unregulated, you can. And I see the reasoning for that. But then again, it also, it's like, well, it's probably the regulated people that you actually want out there saying it. Because if you couldn't be unregulated, Dave wouldn't be able to probably be able to do his thing if he had to be regulated. And he, and he admitted and, to that in one, yeah. of, in one of the videos. And again, look, I'm a, let, me, let me say this, all right? As, as much as I'm taking a dig here, 75% of the people who are listening to Dave Ramsey, if they follow this investment advice, you know what? They're, they're, they're probably going to be better off than they were before. Mm -hmm. And some of the things that I read, part of it is him trying to get people to invest. So anytime someone makes a decision to invest and they have a long horizon in front of them, 
that's a good thing. As much as I'm not. So let's get controversial for a minute. Let's just get real. Okay, let's get real on something. So you don't have to disagree. You don't have to agree with me, Eric. That's fine. And no one else out there does as well. But if you want to send Jason at agency-intelligence.com and tell me your thoughts, tell me your ideas, I'll tell the world what you have to say, I promise. So I think it comes down to this. We were an ELP agency. And I think, number one, the amount of money that he charges for the leads. I think back in the day from talking to a lot of ELP people, um, back in the day, he uh, was really the people you were getting. The leads were really good in quality. Uh, around Somewhere around 08, 09, 2010, he decided to hire a marketing company because someone helped him see the amount of money he could make for that big house that he lives in. And I think that he started the, the, the leads, he started becoming going after this and creating lead gen for the people who he wanted to endorse, right? And, and, and go through that. And I know a lot of those agencies. I'm going to tell you, if you give me enough time, I could probably name 30 to 35 of those agencies. A lot of you are loyal listeners. So when I say this to you, once again, it's not to poke on anybody. It's just my personal thought and my personal feeling. And really, because I'm talking and this is my show, that's really what matters right now. It's my show, Jason. It's actually actually my show, right? It's actually Eric's show. So you tell me that at the beginning, this is my show? Yeah, that's right. So, 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 So here's the deal. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. I just have a thought when I had him that, number one, he was really getting a lot of money out of me and the leads weren't that good. A lot of people say, well, leads are what you make out of them and all that. I get it, but that wasn't it wasn't fitting my strategy. It really truly wasn't. But I do know a lot of agencies that use them, and I will be honest with you, a lot of other agents don't know that they are ELP agents and they make their self seem as if they're a badass agent in a badass agency when really the only reason they're growing is because of these leads. And I don't care what anybody will tell you, a lot of those leads coming out today in the last two, three, four years do not have a high sticky. They're not staying for six, seven years. I've spoke with many, many ELPs who have just gotten really real about it. They still use them, still get a lot of leads, but they'll tell me, Cass, you know, hey, I've got these 10 territories and here's really what it is. It's enough that the volume is worth it. The 3,000, the 2,500, the 4,000 I pay for all of these territories a month, it's worth it. But at the same time, I just think that Sometimes, Eric, those those agencies can really be out in front of the industry and people are wondering like, man, how are they right 150 or 200,000 in personal lines business or how are they writing this life insurance? I think they stand behind this ELP thing and I'm going to say it. I think they're fake. I don't think that they really follow the philosophy. I think they see it as another way to get generate leads and get it in. And I think they kind of and, and this is just me once again, I'm not saying everybody but I think a lot of them prey on it, right? They, they, they prey on these people and the fact that they're already set up. Dave's already teed them. So it's the low-hanging fruit, right? You don't have to explain 250, 500 limits. You don't have to explain disability insurance and the need for it because he's pumping them full of that. You don't have to explain the umbrella because he's pumping them full of that. So in, in one way, you could look at it and say, well, I'm just smart. I'm taking the easy pickings. That's true. But I also want to make sure that you're following the philosophy. There's someone out there by the name of Brandon Smith. We all know Brandon Smith. Brandon Brandon cares. Brandon gives. Brandon gives. Excuse me. That's the thing he has. Brandon lives the ELP through and through. He believes it. He teaches those classes. He pretty much, I haven't seen his arms um, without a shirt on. Nicholas Ayers may have since that's his bay. But I, I, I think that when you look at it, dude, I think that he has a tattoo of ELP on his shirt. 
he lives it through and through. But I'm saying that there's a lot of agents out there that don't. And I think sometimes it's it's a it's an unjustified crime. And, I really you know, do I like, believe that. I like Brandon and and I'm afraid he's not gonna like me after this podcast. Oh my god. Yeah. No, he well, he, he Brandon just wants the truth. Then that's and you know, Brandon's not about fake news, but he li- he leaves that. And that's all we're doing here. Once again, disclaimer coming back. We're just trying to say, hey guys, there's holes in this, just like there's holes in anything. But I think it's really important that it's not a one size fits all. Um, And I think and I hope that any of you ELP agents out there understand that, right? It's not a one size fits all. Look, we got to critically think through this stuff. We do. It might work in your market. It might not work in my market from, from, from what you're talking about. But here's something that's really important, okay? In our industry, there's something we call conflicted, right? Or conflicts of interest. So if I yeah, if you're paying me to give you advice, all right? And I, I, I am a fiduciary to you. And I am steering you towards a product that's going to make me the most money, even though it might not necessarily be the best thing for you. That's called being conflicted. That makes sense? Makes sense. Right? Yeah. So it's really important is if I'm ever engaged with a client for me to disclose any conflicts that I might have. For example, you hire me to give you a financial plan. We, we kind of talk through maybe, um, you know, I call it a financial health snapshot. So Jason, we're going to look at your financial world. You know, I'm going to ask you some questions and we're going to come up with two or three really important planning points for you. Often it's a need for life insurance, but you're not paying me necessarily for to, you're not paying me to sell you a product. You're paying me for my advice. So I'll say, hey, Jason, look, I think you need, you know, one and a half times uh, or one and a half million dollars of life insurance. I think term is the best way to go from a budget standpoint. I can sell that to you. You can buy it from me, but understand that it is outside the scope of this relationship. And I make comp- I get compensated separately if you buy it from me. Most of my clients end up buying it from me because they, they already have a trust factor with me, but you're, there's no way that you're obligated to have to come to me. So that's me disclosing a conflict. I understand. What's, what's the cost to be an ELP? 400, 500, 800 bucks, 1,000 bucks a month? Is there other different? Oh, it depends on how, it depends on how big your, pro, your, your territory is, but the average guy's paying between two to $5,000 a month. Holy smokes, that much? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, no doubt. No doubt. There's some out there paying a thousand or 1500, but they're not getting let's many make leads. Make the math easy. Let's say it's a thousand okay. bucks a month. All right. And, let's do and that. I don't know if it's different for the investment smart investors. I don't know what they pay, but let's just say it's a thousand. So let's say a thousand dollars a month. And let's just say there's a, a thousand smart investors out there. I don't know if that's a good number or not, but again, we're making the math easy. That's a million dollars a month in revenue. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Times 12. That's $12 million a year in revenue for Dave Ramsey to get people to sign up to be his smart investors to pay him for leads. That's a big number. Damn right. right. That's a big number. And, and that's why Dave Ramsey's not licensed because that's what we call conflicted. Now, being conflicted isn't a bad thing. Ah. So from got it. Dave Ramsey doesn't make money by an investor running to one of his smart investors and investing dollars. Dave Ramsey makes money by advisors paying Dave Ramsey for the privilege of getting his referrals. So Dave's revenue mechanism is to drive more and more customers to smart investors. It doesn't matter at the end of the day what they invest in or what they buy. He doesn't make any money. He doesn't participate in that. So the more which people- why he doesn't have to be regulated, which allows him to just blabber on all, and, all, and again, all day. Being I got conflicted you. isn't bad. It's just understanding that. 
Uh, it's just, That's it's right. just understanding that. So let's. So what's this last one that you have over here? I have to wrap this yeah. up with a couple of different things. So this what is be, this one? Asset allocation. Yeah, this to me might be one of the more uh, one of the more dangerous pieces of advice that I think he gives is asset allocation. So asset allocation basically. Uh, when when investment advisors talk about asset allocation, we're talking about different types of asset classes in the investment world. Big companies, medium-sized companies, small companies, growth companies, dividend-paying companies, international companies, bonds, government bonds, high-yield bonds. So different types of asset classes. So what the idea is from a diversification standpoint, we want to allocate our assets, our money, in different of uh, these company sizes or company types to diversify our risk. That makes sense? Mm -hmm. yep, it does. So Dave Ramsey will say that there's really four asset classes that you should own. He says growth and income, growth, aggressive growth, and international. So right off the bat, um, he's saying that you should be 100% equities, which is a problem. All right. That make, it's so, so why? Why is that 100% a problem? <laughs> you're you're gearing up for retirement and you're 100% in the market and you have a low risk tolerance and all of a sudden let's take last week for example the market dropped 10%. Gotcha. I understand what you mean by equity now. Gotcha. Yeah, stock. gotcha I'm, gotcha, I'm gotcha, sorry. Gotcha. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm I'm, I'm industry speak. So stocks, 100% in stocks. So mutual funds gotcha. mutual okay. funds own individual stocks. So stock mm -hmm. represents ownership mm -hmm. in an individual company. So he says that's diversification. Well, here's the problem. I've got pulled up on my screen. You can't see it here. Two mutual funds from a very uh, reputable uh, investment company called Vanguard. All right, this, I'm not endorsing Vanguard. I'm not picking on Vanguard. This is just to prove a point from from a diversification standpoint. So Dave says you should own 25% of your portfolio in growth and income, which he calls big blue chip large companies. Okay. Yep. And then he says growth. His other asset class is what he calls growth, and he says those are middle sized companies. All right, a little bit more aggressive than growth and income. He describes growth and income as being kind of your safety. So I've got on my screen a Vanguard growth fund and a grant and a Vanguard growth and income fund. Okay. I just want to All read right. you the top 10 holdings in each of these. It'll be really quick. You'll you'll recognize okay. pretty much all these companies and tell me if this is diversification. All right. So let's start with the growth and income fund. Top 10 holdings. Microsoft, Apple. Amazon, Johnson & Johnson, Facebook, Alphabet, Verizon, Visa, JP Morgan, MasterCard. Okay? okay. Cool. Great companies. Yeah, good companies. Right? Solid. So here's the other asset class that's going to give you diversification. You ready? Top 10 holdings. Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Alphabet, A-share classes and C-share classes, Visa, MasterCard, Home Depot, Comcast. Those are almost identical. Almost, yeah. That, that provides no no diversification. And if you're someone with a low risk tolerance and you're 100% equities, that's a problem. So that is a there's problem. A, um, I see what you're saying. A, there's an interesting yeah. stat out there. I think Oppenheimer, I don't have it in front of me. I think Oppenheimer um, put this out, but it shows over a 20-year period. It compares just the broad market. So if you would have just invested in the stock market, uh, what your return would have been in stocks compared to the average investor. And the average investor woefully underperformed the stock market. And the reason was because the average investor has emotions and they have very bad behaviors and they get freaked out and they jump out the market and they jump back in the market. I remember Makes in 08, you know, getting calls from clients, go to cash, go to cash. And the beginning of 09, go to cash. No, we're not going to go to cash. We made some adjustments in your portfolio. 
And most of those clients who took our advice stayed invested. They participated in the recovery in 2009. The people who freaked out and went to cash never, never really recovered. Mm -hmm. um, so what this does, this ignores, and Dave Ramsey, to his defense, he'll say, ignore what's going in the market and stay invested. Just keep staying invested, which is actually good advice. That's good advice. But yeah. it ignores the fact that maybe I'm approaching retirement. Maybe I don't need the same amount of risk. You know, bonds, bonds have a place in an investment portfolio. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, that's, that's what I mean by asset allocation and my problem there. Uh, it, that's interesting, dude. I'd never see. I've never heard that. This is why this was such a. This is such a good podcast, let's, dude. Let's take it one step, is, let me take it one step further. Another one of his asset classes is international. So there's many different flavors of international mutual funds, right? There's global, uh, and then there's international, and there's international including the U.S. There's international excluding the U.S. So if you go buy an international fund or a global fund that includes the U.S.A., there's a really good chance that. All those ten companies that I just read to you are going to be there. Are again. going to be in that fund. <laughs> so there's there's absolutely no, no, diversification, no diversification, really, which is which is problematic. And one other thing, really quick, and this goes back to uh, the the mutual fund conversation is with mutual funds. If you're buying loaded or commissioned mutual funds, you're kind of committed to that one investment company. So whether it's American funds or or, or Vanguard or Fidelity or Oppenheimer. I think Oppenheimer was actually bought by Invesco, so they might not even be around anymore. But you get certain breakpoints or discounts based off the amount of money you invested. So when you go into mutual funds and you're paying commissions, you're kind of committed to one investment company and their offerings because otherwise you'll lose those discounts. That makes sense. Uh, so for example, I can't sell you in a, in a commissioned account. I can't sell you a Fidelity fund and, and an American fund if it's causing you to miss out on a discount, a part of that fiduciary thing. Can't do that. Gotcha. In another account, I might be able to get away with it. And it's hurting you as the investor because you're paying more fees unnecessarily. So anyway. Well, I got to tell you, I think we took it easy on Dave because I think there's a lot of other places that we could have beat. But I mean, those are four reasons why I disagree with Dave Ramsey's investment pro uh, philosophy. And I have to say that that's, that is his reasoning. That is Mr. Um, Eric Garcia, I have to also say I agree with every one of them. I threw in two of my own. I think I was very soft on him. But wrapping this up, I mean, overall, how should people think? I mean, we should understand and just do our research, right? We should understand that he is a pillar of good. He means well to the to a and and when you are speaking to the masses, that's a tough thing to use a broad enough paintbrush because there's people who need to have a thinner paintbrush. I guess we should say. What is your thoughts? What is anything you want to close this up with to of of of, uh, of why you think this? Anything you want to add? Yeah, I'll say this. And again, you said he's 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 preaching to the masses. Most of your listeners are not part of the masses. Most of your listeners are business owners. Uh, they may have significant amount of assets invested. Uh, their situation is different. Uh, I mean, it's it set apart. It, it, it deserves and it demands more nuanced and more personal and specific investment advice. Um, you know, I got to do a show on how to how to hire an investment manager, um, but it's just something to get people thinking about, right? That mm -hmm. uh, Dave Ramsey again mm -hmm. is preaching to the masses. Dave Ramsey's philosophy might be good for eighty percent of our clients that we're dealing with on a regular basis, or, or that you're dealing with True. on the insurance side. And I'm not mm -hmm. saying that 
we're any better as business owners. It's just different. If I've got a hundred thousand or a quarter million dollars sitting in a taxable investment account, and I'm in a thirty-five percent tax bracket, and I get stuck with you know thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars of short-term gains, I'm paying thirty-five percent tax on that. Well, you know, there's investment strategies that can say, hey, we can pretty much take short-term gains off of the table completely and save you a crap ton of money. So all I'm saying is... It depends. It depends. Exactly. Be critical of the advice that you're getting and make sure that the person you're working with is a fiduciary. Look, if any of your listeners want to reach out to me, I'd be more than happy to to review a portfolio and answer any questions. But yeah, totally. That's it. That's it. Just, you know, it's just kind of me taking down Dave Ramsey. That's all I wanted to do this morning. I can't wait for the next one, dude, because uh, th- this is stuff that needs to be talked about, things that we don't think about. I love the things that make us think, right? Because it's like we live in our own little cocoon, our own little thing I'm in our agency, head down, working on or working in it. And sometimes we don't get to think about this stuff. Those were things right there, Eric, that I had not thought about either. So so thank you very much, dude. And if someone wants to reach out to you, tell them where they can find you. Yeah, you can email me, Eric, E-R-I-K, at plan-wisely.com. Or you can hit me up on the website. It's uh, www.plan-wisely.com. Now, I don't have really the statistics, but I do know that there it, it, it lies in some type of truth. And that is that if, you, um, if somebody has 100, 300 limits on their auto policy, I think it's like 5% of the, t- of the time, the client that people actually use their actual limits, right? It goes back to the masses. It goes to, if you're one of the masses, it's highly, highly likely that you will go through the rest of your life and you will probably, even if you're in an accident, probably not even have bodily injury, right? Most of the time you're in an accident, you just have property damage. So. Would we take that advice, loyal listeners, to say that's completely opposite of what we talk about every day? A lot of us have minimum limits in our agency. I do it 100, 300. And we explain to our students that are to our students, we explain to our clients that that's like being a C student. That's just the minimum that you should probably do. The, the, but very rarely do they hit that. I think it goes back to the Dave Ramsey thing. We're talking about the fact that for the masses, this is great information. It's going to be it's going to be life changing to them. It's going to get them out of debt. They're going to be able to make some better decisions because, as you said, Eric, they're actually just doing something, and that's better than nothing. If they're just trying to strategize with their money, even the littlest bit, and that's where Dave comes in. Dave was he helped me substantially in things that maybe my mom and dad should have told me. Maybe things I should have paid attention to. When I was younger. So I think he has way more good than he does. Um, and I don't even want to say bad. I just think it's he talks to those masses. And you need to ask yourself if you're one of the masses. Me personally, um, and us as an industry, I know for a fact that if you're an agency owner, or you're an agent that's worth half, um, uh, uh, you're as half as good as you should be you've got enough money that you're not part of the masses. Let's just be honest. You probably need to call somebody like Eric because Eric is also an insurance agent, but he's a financial advisor, but he's an insurance agency owner as well. He kind of knows what we're doing in, in that regard. So I don't think any of you probably listening are part of that. 
Now, where you have to question that is when you're an ELP agent out there, Jason at agency-intelligence.com. I'm giving you my email address. So you can sit there and cuss me all you want listening to this, or you can call me on the phone and cuss me. I love it. That's fine. Because I'm not saying what you're doing is bad. I'm not saying you being an ELP. I'm just wanting you to question and realize that 80% of the people that you're talking to are those masses But I'm curious if you have a process in your agency that weeds out those other 20% to say, hey, you need something different. If you do, great. But if you don't, I'm hoping that this podcast opened up your mind to where you could possibly be leaving your clients in not such a good position. And I don't want to say in a bad position, but Eric just gave you four areas for you to sound more like a rock star, right? For you to ask those questions knowing the reasoning behind it to if they're part of that 20%. So take away the good out of this. Understand that Eric and I are just doing it because we want that information out there. We want you to think. And Eric called me and said he wanted to do it. And so what I said is, Eric, tell me your thoughts. Tell me your ideas. And I'm going to tell the world what you have to say. This has been Jason Cass with Agency Intelligence Podcast. Today, I gave you a real agent inside a real agency, giving you the real agency intelligence and not that artificial that they try to make you believe. This has been Cass. That's Garcia. We're out. Hey, agents, listen to this. Listen to this. What are we terrible at? Think of it. Think of it. Really? We're we're terrible at training, right? We're not very good at hiring. We're not very good, terrible at firing, actually. Uh, Terrible at creating process and some workflows. Terrible at technology and implementing that technology and even knowing what type of technology we want. And the list goes on and on. Now, listen, I'm an agency owner and I, you know how it is to, to fix a problem. The first thing you got to do is you got to admit you have a problem. Here's what you do. Go to virtualintel.com. Check out what we do because we do all those bad things that you can't do. Really? And you may do one or two of them well. Good for you if you can do them all. Just want you to know you're in the minority. But if you can't do any of them good or you don't even want to do them anymore because it just takes too much mental power, then good for you for realizing that and give us a call. I'm telling you, virtual intelligence, that's what we do. And where we specialize in high-quality VEs, not virtual assistants. Look it up. Go to ChatGPT. Put in what's the difference between a virtual assistant and a virtual employee. Enough said. I don't have enough time to go on and on about all the differences on this 60-second commercial. But you've got time to search it and look at it. That's what we do. We deliver high quality VEs. We mix the technology with it. We train them on the technology, give them and the technology to you, and you're off to the races. I'm not joking with you. You can call my agency at any time, ask for Lordland, and we do ask her, say, how fast are you able to do quotes? I've actually got a couple videos of it. That's right. We can do five to 10 carriers in one quote in three to seven minutes. So you give me an auto quote, I can do five to 10 carriers in three to seven minutes. How are we doing it? We're doing it through the technology of virtual intelligence. Give us a call, check us out. You can ask for me personally, I'll do the demo for you. Who are they? Cast certified.